everyone, welcome back. How is your day going? Hope that you are having a wonderful day and welcome to today's episode of the Side Floor podcast in which I'm very, very excited to be discussing with you guys today the biological and neurological link between IQ and psychiatric illness. We're going to be focusing on some questions such as, are more intelligent individuals more likely to become mentally ill? Is higher IQ also likely to be the reason why some of these intelligent individuals will become mentally ill. First of all, let's get the basics out of the way. What is intelligence? Where can we find it in the brain and how do we measure it? Brain function tends to be distributed pretty evenly across various areas of the brain that harbour specific functions. But can we attribute intelligence to one or several specific areas? Well, early imaging studies around 1993 found that IQ scores correlate with the intracranial, cerebral, temporal lobe, the hippocampal and the cerebral volume, basically how big or thick something is in our cortex. And a neuroimaging technique called voxel morphometry or VBM allows the estimation of differences in the brain structure in terms of whether an area is very clustered together or spread across the cortex. And when applying this particular technique to brain imaging, data shows that there is a positive correlation between intelligence and cortical thickness, especially in multiple areas associated with the frontal and temporal lobes. And the average IQ in the general population is around 100. The way we define intelligence usually involves some kind of standardised measure of IQ, focusing on the person's spatial abilities, math skills, language abilities and memory recall. The very first IQ tests were designed to identify children in need of extra academic help, but that quickly changed and they became a measure of identifying above average intelligence individuals. There's a range of IQ tests available online, I'm sure. We all tried to, at one point, look up what our IQ is and quickly gave up after we found out how much they charge for these results, but actual standardised intelligence examinations, for example the SBT, marks the average IQ to be around 100. Genius level is anywhere between 135 and 140 or above, and it is estimated that around 2 to maybe 1% of people in the population fall into this category. But here's the thing, if you're anything like me, you might actually be wondering whether or not these results and these tests truly measure intelligence or just simply academic success. And you're not alone. In the early 1920s, the psychologist Lewis Terman began investigating the children who scored high or genius level scores on the IQ test in order to determine how well adjusted they were physically and socially to the world around them, aside from their academic success. He continued to track the progress of these children over the years and found that they were more socially and physically well adjusted. And yes, more academically successful as well, but they tended to be healthier, stronger, even taller and less accident prone than children they were compared with who actually scored an average IQ mark. The study started by Terman called The Study of the Gifted was then continued after his death in the 50s and it is now the longest running study in history, showing that the standardised IQ measures not only focus on academic success and grades but also overall ability to adjust to the world around us. Okay, so we know round about where intelligence is in the brain, we know what it is, we know what it measures and we know how to measure it. But what does it actually mean in the real world? How does being well adjusted actually translate into the real world? Well, when looking at the general population, years of research have shown us that high IQ is associated with many known benefits. So these include 
creativity, income, health, social mobility, and indeed life expectancy. And evidence also suggests that there is a positive relationship between IQ and academic grades, which is no secret. A study which you can still find online by Jay Zagorski titled Do you have to be smart to be rich investigated the link between scores on the test and average salary of the participants and they found that one point of increase on the IQ score is associated with anywhere between $200 and $600 increase in salary per year. Interestingly, some of these participants, even though they had the 1% genius IQ, were not actually found to earn anywhere above average they were actually um in terms of you know the income in terms of the career and job they had they were not that different from the general population and i think i'm not the only one who feels like we have been taught that the smarter you are and the higher your iq is the better your life will be the smarter you are the better your academic achievements the better your grades your job prospects your relationships your health there seems to be almost no downfalls to having a high level of intelligence but here we are. And so the reality is that we are not usually told or is not often discussed, especially in a social setting, that higher IQ or higher level of intelligence is actually often associated with higher levels of depression, of anxiety, mental illness and physiological illness. I want to talk about one of the most influential research pieces in regards to this area that I could find in the last 20-30 years um, and this is the research by Karpinski and colleagues which investigated around 4,000 members of the Mensa Society and if you don't know the Mensa Society is basically a high IQ society in which the members have to be in the top 2% of the population in terms of IQ. This normally means that across all of these different standardized scores they have to score anywhere between 132 or higher. As given by the Scientific American they said that the survey that was administered to these people covered mood disorders such as depression and bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders such as the generalized social and obsessive compulsive disorders, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and also autism. It also covered environmental allergies, anything from asthma to autoimmune disorders and respondents were asked to report whether they had ever been formally diagnosed with any of these disorders or maybe they suspected that they suffered from it with a return rate of nearly 75%. So the biggest difference between the society members and the general population was regarding the mood and anxiety disorders. More than a quarter, around 26.7% of the sample, reported that they had been formally diagnosed with a mood disorder. So these are people who are in the top 2% of population in terms of intelligence and many of them, many of them more than a quarter, said that they have been actually formally professionally diagnosed with a mood disorder. 20% reported an anxiety disorder far higher than the national average of around 10% and the prevalence of environmental allergies was triple the national average. So the people who administered this survey also went on to then try and explain the findings and the best fitting theory for these findings was the hyperbrain hyperbody theory. So this basically means that high intellectual capacity is often associated with having a hyper excitability in the brain. This concept was first introduced by a Polish psychologist Kazimierz Dąbrowski who's most known for his theory relating to individuals high intellectual capacity across lifespans and also their emotional development. So hyperexcitability basically means that the brain is stimulated a lot more than average and this could be due to loss of inhibitory neurons which normally act like the brakes in the brain they balance out the excitation 
function. It is important to know that this kind of imbalance over the years has been linked to many diseases and neurodegenerative conditions of the brain, anywhere from ALS to schizophrenia, even having common mechanisms with autism spectrum disorder. Never before, however, have I heard of it being linked to intelligence. So Dombrowski found these hyperreactions and intensities to occur with greater frequency and of greater strength in the intellectually gifted compared to those with a normal or lower IQ. According to his clinical observations, bright individuals tend to be neurotically allergic or nervous, a condition which can be observed to be relatively absent in the intellectually delayed or average individuals. They demonstrated a uniquely heightened way of experiencing and responding to the world around them and their environment, especially in five specific areas. And this was psychomotor, sensory, intellectual, imaginational, and emotional domains. He found that this overexcitability tends to be associated with personality development. And in those individuals, he observed symptoms of slight neurosis, such as depression, mild anxiety, and even ticks. So the big question that the researchers were focusing on in the hyper-brain-hyper-body theory is, is there a relationship between a heightened cognitive capacity, which is the hyper-brain, and also heightened psychological and physiological immune response, a hyper-body? Is this why people who have higher IQ develop allergies, immunological diseases, and are much more sensitive to events, which in turn could lead to psychiatric and mental illness? And yes, as mentioned, the study found significantly higher levels of mood and anxiety disorders also relating to ADHD and autism in the top 2% of the population compared with the general public. But is there any other explanations? For centuries mankind has been trying to settle the debate between nature and nurture and I'm sure you've heard of this argument at least once definitely if you've watched any criminal documentary. Are we born a certain way and there's just nothing we can do to change it? Are we a product of our environment and bringing up? Does it have a defining effect on us which affects us for the rest of our lives? And indeed IQ has been found to be passed on genetically to our children. This is incredibly fascinating to me. A study in 2014 said that genetic factors played a major role in determining IQ. However, various other modifiable environmental influences can also influence the IQ of an individual. Twin studies are a major, major area of research in terms of IQ because you basically have two identical copies of someone's DNA which then you can separate and experiment on essentially. It has been widely known for a while that twin studies were incredibly unethical back in the day. I'm sure we have all seen some Netflix documentary talking about twins separated at birth who then find a way back to each other. These studies were incredibly unethical, however they did teach us a lot a lot about the nature-nurture argument. So the twin studies that we are talking about of adult individuals have found a heritability of IQ between 57 to 73%, with the most recent studies showing heritability of IQ as high as 80%. The studies go from showing IQ from being weakly correlated with genetics for children to being very strongly correlated with genetics for late teens and adults. There are around 500 different genes linked to intelligence, but what good is a genetic link if an individual doesn't have the opportunity to fully develop and explore the potential. If the environment stunts a genetically intelligent person, say due to substance abuse, maybe substance abuse of their caregivers, subsequent neglect, or even factors such as poverty that are out of their control, what happens then? So a study published on the 24th of September in Translational Psychiatry, a peer-reviewed medical journal, suggests that environmentally induced epigenetic changes may have an important impact on intelligence. I personally find the discussion of epigenetics 
fascinating. I think it's incredibly interesting. Epigenetics are heritable changes in gene expressions rather than changes in the underlying DNA structure itself that are typically associated with evolution. Changes in the DNA sequence can take millions, millions of years to appear, whereas due to epigenetic changes, these happen much faster and can occur within one generation. Basically, this means that whichever genes you activate particularly a lot in your life, these are more likely to be then passed on to your children. And I find this area so incredibly interesting. Dr. Rhonda Patrick is particularly known and proactive in this area, stating that factors such as weight loss and weight gain can actually have impact on the DNA of your unborn child. I will let her explain much more adequately what epigenetics are in a nutshell and what the pilot studies about weight gain and weight loss found and how they affect unborn children. I will play you some of the interview that she gave in relation to this. What was looked at was sperm DNA in men that were obese mm -hmm. um, and men that were non-obese, so healthy, healthy men. And uh, there was a variety, like over 500 genes were changed in terms of like how their expression was, mm. right? So their epigenetics were changed and a lot of these genes had to do with metabolism, they had to do with cognitive function. Mm -hmm. Men, these men underwent bariatric surgery. So these were obese, like yeah. morbidly obese men. Uh, they underwent bariatric surgery mm -hmm. and their sperm DNA was measured pretty close after and then like a year later. Mm. And the epigenetics mm -hmm. switched back to closer to what the you know lean men looked like. So it was really Amazing. a very um, interesting kind of pilot study indicating their definitely seems to be a causal, like, you know, obesity is changing the, you know, a lot of, you know, the way these genes are in sperm DNA, yeah. you know, which is what you're passing on. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and there's it's been huge. tons of studies yeah. showing, you know, you know, male yeah. mice that are obese have, you know, offspring, like, you know, female offspring that are, you know, get type 1 diabetes because they get like some autoimmune thing or, you know, mm -hmm. so there's been lots of animal studies. Yes. Of course, you can only yeah. translate so much of that. So yeah. I felt like that human study was really, you know, a good um, pilot study that really kind of show look this is happening in humans mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and certainly um make people think men aren't off the hook either yeah you know and that's, that's right. oftentimes are you know yeah i think that i'm not sure a lot of men are aware of the fact that, yeah. that their lifestyle actually does matter right they're becoming um, more important than we think right so if our lifestyle and environmental factors have the potential to affect and actually change our DNA expression, does that mean that it can also relate to intelligence? And yes, in fact, the study that she mentioned extended to hypothesizing that activation of certain genes in our lifetime can have an impact on the intelligence and cognitive abilities of our unborn children. Similarly, a study published in the European Scientist in 2018 by Dunphy and colleagues measured the neurological link between epigenetics and IQ, and the findings show a link between the epigenetic changes in dopamine neurotransmission and an individual's IQ performance. These modifications can basically silence or turn off the dopamine receptor gene, leading to reduced signal transmission and fewer dopamine receptors being activated, and in turn, this was associated with much lower IQ test scores. Once again, I find it absolutely fascinating that the choices of our parents and their parents before them, and us as individuals, can actually have somewhat of a butterfly effect in our family tree. We can individually choose whether we will increase or decrease certain skills of our children and our children's chances of having a higher or lower IQ just by our own everyday choices. And of course, this is not 
the only factor influencing a child's development or intelligence and a lot of this work is still in progress and just developing theories. A 2016 study in India looked at the effect of environmental factors on a child's development. They stated that a child's intelligent quotient, which is the IQ, is determined by both genetics and environmental factors that start from the prenatal period itself, so this is before the child is even born. They found that the environmental factors such as place of residence, physical activity, family income, parental education and occupation of the father had a big impact on the IQ of the child. They actually identified factors which had the most influence and these were children living in cities, children having physical activity of more than five hours a week, children of parents having a postgraduate or graduate level of education, children whose father was a professional and those with a higher family income. All of those children were more likely to have high IQ. There are many, many other factors also influencing the perceived IQ of individuals extending from socio-economical to cultural. An interesting study that I found actually said that the IQ scores are influenced by specific cultural experiences such as exposure to certain language customs and knowledge from an early age. For instance, many low-income African-American children are raised with a language style which may be characterized by an emphasis of storytelling and the recounting of personal experiences. For example, you know, did you hear what happened to this person? Many questions appear in this conversational style, but a fair portion of the time they function more as a rhetorical device designed to engage and push further the conversation rather than a specific question for precise information with a correct or an incorrect answer. This style of questioning encourages social bonding but isn't actually particularly good preparation for traditional intelligence testing which typically demands one answer to a specific single question that has one correct response. In contrast, a lot of the caregivers in middle income and above white and Asian families tend to spend a fair amount of time asking children specific knowledge based questions that have a single correct answer. For example, what is this word? What shape is this? How old are you? These knowledge-based questions are more like the questions that are used in the traditional IQ test and therefore these children may feel more comfortable dealing with these types of tasks and therefore they can score better on these tests. And so it's not that far of a stretch to think that our way of examining someone's intelligence is actually wrong and maybe misleading. Maybe the way they're interpreting the question is simply not what will give us the optimal results. Maybe we're just examining the wrong area of their intelligence rather than simply, you know, dismissing it as saying that this person is simply below average. Family socioeconomic status also affects the children's development and intelligence. So children who feel safe, they are well fed and rested, they are healthy and whose parents value their intellectual development will be better able and motivated to concentrate their energy and attention on mental tasks and tests. In contrast, children who constantly feel afraid for the safety, who are hungry, may be sick, chronically exhausted and whose parents are overwhelmed and not focused on a singular child's education and cannot give them that attention will simply not have as much energy or motivation to spend pursuing cognitive development and maybe academic success. As well as this, parents who are not struggling to simply meet children's basic needs have the luxury of energy and time that they can spend reading to children, playing games with them and becoming involved in the homework and school related activities. But then how does this end up coming full circle and relating to mental vulnerability and potential psychiatric problems. Well, there may in fact be a few different explanations for this phenomenon in addition to the hyperbrain, hyperbody hypothesis, and they may all be relatively relevant to some degree. One possibility is that the genes associated with intelligence may also make you more prone to mental illness, but intelligence doesn't directly increase your risk of mental illness. They simply happen to 
correlate and coexist but do not actually directly cause one another. Another possibility is that people with higher IQs are often more socially isolated, which leads to more anxiety and more depression. For example, people with autism spectrum disorders and above average IQ are at a much higher risk for depression. And that may also happen to a lesser extent with intelligent people who are not on a spectrum. At this point, I have a little bit of an anecdote that I brought up to my partner at the time of making this episode. One of my all-time favorite TV series is House MD. My personal favourite episode case is on the one titled Ignorance is Bliss, in which a child genius basically finds a way to microdose himself in order to reduce his intelligence to be able to live a normal life. In the end, House and his team addresses underlying injuries and he's back to his prior level of intelligence, but he hates it. He finds it difficult to be with his partner, who is of average intelligence, and he quotes, You know what the difference between her IQ and mine is? 91 points. In relation, she's closer to a given than she is to me. Having sex with her would be an act of bestiality. This really, really got to me and it resonates with me still, um, not only because it's my favourite episode, but it's because it made me realise that individuals of great intelligence have to absolutely feel incredibly isolated in their day-to-day -day lives. There's even a phenomenon, well a hypothesis, of a phenomenon called depressive realism, which granted is not researched adequately and never really proven, but could maybe tie into this episode. Could it be that those who are more intelligent are aware of the horrific truths of the world, they're aware of the environmental, economic problems, the injustice going on in the world, the difficulties of politics in everyday life, and are in fact more receptive and sensitive to these pieces of information which in turn makes them more realistic and unfortunately more likely to be isolated and depressed because they are constantly worrying about things that they cannot change and they become anxious. Call me crazy but it does make sense. I do feel like it could be possible that those of an average or slightly below average intelligence know how to take life a day at a time. Maybe they are not educated on all of these social political issues of foreign countries and their own countries and their effects and maybe in a way this means that they are a lot less anxious, they're happy living their lives and focusing on what they know, you know, happy sticking to the routine and the jobs, the family and friends which act like a protective factor from feelings of depression and isolation because of this feeling of impending doom. And of course this is just a theory but I do personally find it fascinating. And another possibility is that more intelligent individuals are more likely to be diagnosed than people of average or below average intelligence because of their education and background. So people who are educated and health conscious are generally well informed. They maybe do some research on their own, maybe you know because of the education they take health a lot more seriously and they are more likely to seek help for mental illness and less likely to be discouraged by the perceived stigma. In other words, part of that higher rate might simply reflect more awareness of mental health issues and greater access to mental health care. In any case, the final thought I just wanted to leave with you today was the perspective and realization that high IQ is not all it's cracked up to be. It doesn't always mean better and bigger and more successful. Sometimes it means isolated and anxious and possibly more likely to get ill. I think it's important to find a middle ground. Don't kick yourself if you, like me and many others, are not child prodigies, but do pick up that book that you've been eyeing for the last week. Do have that realization that your choices today could affect your child tomorrow but do enjoy your life one day at a time and strive to improve but don't chase unrealistic standards because often they can come at high ugly prices that no one is aware of that is everything that i have for you guys today thank you so much for listening and i hope you tune in next time have a great day